As Ben said, in the Jewish tradition, we are in the midst of the High Holy Days, also known as the Days of Awe, that run from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah literally means the head, the beginning of the year. And whereas the secular calendar, we're used to, many of us, the uh, calendar starting on January 1st is New Year's Day, the Jewish calendar celebrates New Year's on Rosh Hashanah. So by the traditional Jewish reckoning, it's not 2017, it's 5778. They've been at it a little longer. So for those who celebrate, Lashana Tovah, meaning for a good year. This year, Rosh Hashanah started this past Wednesday evening at sunset and ended on Friday. Uh, One among many ways to celebrate Rosh Hashanah includes taking apples and dipping them in honey to symbolize the hope for a sweet new year. The Jewish holidays and really all holidays on the Jewish calendar begin with sunset. It's a tradition derived from the opening chapter of the book of Genesis, whose repeated cadence speaks of the evening and morning the first day, the evening and morning the second day, and so on. The High Holy Days culminate with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish year, a day of fasting and repentance. This year, Yom Kippur will begin this coming Friday at sunset and end at nightfall on Saturday. The traditional greeting on Yom Kippur, again, for those who observe that holiday, is Gujyantif, meaning good holiday. And for more than 10 years, on many Friday evenings and um, Saturday mornings, Kolomi, a Reformed Jewish congregation, has met and worshipped in this building, right here in this sanctuary. And that's really not surprising. It's a pretty natural resonance that when you look at the uh, cooperation that often happens between this congregation, UUCF, between Kolomi, the Reformed Jewish congregation, and between ERUCC, Evangelical Reformed United Church of Christ, where we'll be hosting the Peace Vigil and multi-faith musical celebrations this afternoon, that same local cooperation is mirrored on the national level. So when you look at what organizations, what religious movements is the UUA, the Unitarian Universalist, partnering with most consistently over the years, it's the Union of Reformed Judaism and the United Church of Christ. So we have a good relationship both with ERUCC and with Kolomi, but there's also a strong tradition of Jewish Unitarian Universalists. Indeed, the fourth of our six sources is Jewish and Christian teachings, explicitly that, not just the later sources that name the world religions generally. And note that our fourth source is not Judeo-Christian teachings. That word Judeo-Christian is a little tricky. It tends to often mean, to really mean that Judeo is supplementing the Christian, so that it's often, we start with Christianity and we look for the commonalities in Judaism, and we call that the Judeo-Christian tradition. That's a little different than saying, looking at both the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition and honoring them equally. Over the past few years as your minister, I've preached quite a few sermons about ways to interpret various texts in the Hebrew Bible, and although I still may explore with you from time to time a particularly interesting way of interpreting that set of scriptures, it's also interesting to see what we UUs can learn from the Jewish tradition more broadly. 
And in future years, I look forward to sharing with you, for example, about, the, about influential Jewish figures such as Gershom Shloam, the founder of the modern study of Kabbalah and the first professor of Jewish mysticism at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, about the plurality of Jewish identities over time, about the diversity of Judaisms. As a whole, we should be clear, and I'm not really embarrassed about this, it's just sort of true, that Unitarian Universalism tends to have a bit of a bias toward the future. Well, you know, our symbol is the flame, this flaming chalice, what's our, our living tradition. To quote a line from one of our historic hymns, we celebrate a freedom that reveres the past, but trusts the dawning future more. Reveres the past, but trusts the dawning future more. In contrast, our fourth source of the Jewish and Christian teachings is another of the parts of our tradition of Unitarian Universalism that tries to remind us of the beauty and the power and the meaning that can derive from history and ritual and tradition done not even just over centuries, but over millennia. To quote the Cohen brothers, 3,000 years of beautiful tradition from Moses to Sandy Koufax, you're darn right I'm living in the past. All that being said, many months ago when I first planned to preach about the Jewish tradition this morning, my intention, my expectation was to talk about these archetypes of Sinai and Zion regarding the symbolic shift in spirituality that can happen when you move from a transformative first-hand experience with the sacred in the wilderness, such as atop Mount Sinai, to a second-hand debate and people trying to sort of broker and control that, the memory of that experience that can happen when the divine becomes primarily located not in the wilderness or the desert or your firsthand experiences, but within the controlled borders of a temple and interpreted by a priestly caste. But as I reflected this past week on the Jewish tradition, I felt increasingly compelled to share with you a different insight on the Jewish tradition than just the archetypes of Sinai and Zion. Because when I scheduled this topic many months ago, I had no idea that the past few weeks would witness an emboldened and virulent anti-Semitism in this country. So as we reflect on the Jewish tradition here amidst the High Holy Days, I feel like it would be failing to name the elephant in the room if I neglected to remind us that barely a month ago on August 14th, two days after this nation watched in horror as hundreds of well-armed neo-Nazis and other white supremacists held a violent rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Just two days after that, a 17-year-old boy in downtown Boston picked up a rock and shattered one of six tall glass towers in the New England Memorial, Holocaust Memorial. A day later, an unknown person shattered the glass doors of the synagogue of, of a synagogue in Queens, New York, just hours after the nation had watched in disbelief as the President of the United States described the unrest in Charlottesville as very fine people on both sides. Across the country in Alameda, California, on August 17th, a security camera captured another unidentified vandal throwing rocks at Temple Israel, again shattering many windows. You can learn a lot more details about each of these incidents, as well as a horrifying number of related examples on the website of the Anti-Defamation League. But it's important to name these acts, they aren't mere vandalism. There is a historic resonance that makes the shattering of glass in Jewish buildings a very precise hate crime. 
Because on the night of November 9th, 1938, and into the next day, mobs of Germans massacred nearly 100 Jews and smashed the windows of Jewish businesses in Jewish synagogues. That evening became known as Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass. And it was an early sign of what was to grow into the Nazis' attempt at genocide of the Jewish people. Here in America, in the days leading up to the Jewish High Holy Days, there's a nonpartisan tradition that goes back many years of the President of the United States holding a conference call with hundreds of rabbis to celebrate that this is a free country with religious liberty where Jews can freely celebrate the holiest time in their sacred year. But this year was different. Four major, the four major um, Jewish groups, with the exception of the Orthodox rabbis, the Central Conference of American Rabbis and the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, both representing Reform Jewish rabbis, the Rabbinical Assembly, which is a coalition of conservative rabbis, and the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association. All four of those major groups of rabbis boycotted the call this year with the president. In highlighting this act of protest, my intent is not partisan. Rather, it is solidarity with our Jewish siblings, and it is against acts that either actively or tacitly support anti-Semitism. In the words of the joint statement that was released uh, announcing this boycott, President Trump's statements during and after the tragic events in Charlottesville are so lacking in moral leadership and empathy for the victims of racial and religious hatred that we cannot organize a call this year. The president's words have given succor to those who advocate anti-Semitism, racism, and xenophobia. Responsibility for the violence that occurred in Charlottesville, including the death of Heather Hare. Do not lie with many sides but with one side, the Nazis, the alt-right, and the white supremacists. There is no place for such pernicious philosophies in a civilized society. Now that last part of that statement announcing the boycott can be particularly difficult to negotiate in the United States generally and within Unitarian Universalism specifically because the United States generally and Unitarian Universalism specifically are traditions that deeply value individual freedom. So what guidance might the Jewish tradition have for us? One of the most helpful touchstones is from the late philosopher Karl Popper, whose parents were Lutherans, but they converted to Lutheranism as part of a European cultural assimilation process. All four of Karl Popper's grandparents were Jewish. And in 1945, the year that World War II ended, Popper wrote an important book called The Open Society and Its Enemies. In particular, I invite us to reflect on a profound passage that he wrote in that book called what he called the paradox of tolerance. These are his words. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. In this formulation, I do not imply that we should always suppress the utterances of intolerant philosophies. As long as we can counter them with rational arguments, as long as we can keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would be unwise. 
But we should claim the right to suppress, if necessary, even by force, for it may easily turn out that the intolerant are not prepared to meet us on the level playing field of rational argument, but instead may begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it is deceptive and teach them instead to answer arguments by the use of fists or pistols. We should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate intolerance. We should claim that any movement preaching intolerance risks placing itself outside of the law, and we should consider incitement to intolerance uh, potentially a persecutionable crime as a criminal in the same way that we we would consider incitement to murder, incitement to kidnapping, or incitement to the revival of the slave trade. Now, by all means, I will grant that these are treacherous waters to negotiate, but we live in perilous times. I'll say more about this dynamic in early November in a sermon about how do we practice democracy in such a time as this. I'll also readily admit that in addition to the importance generally of responding to any call to be in solidarity with Jews everywhere in opposing and resisting anti-Semitism in any guise, just as we should listen to calls to respond to racism, to xenophobia against immigration, to Islamophobia. So just as I take that general call very seriously, I also take the rise in anti-Semitism quite personally. As many of you know, my wife is Jewish. We were married at Temple Oheb Shalom in Baltimore. The Jewish tradition is very centrally important to our family. To name one lighthearted example, we have two cats. They're named Shamish and Colney Dre. Uh, Shamish is orange. We got them at Hanukkah. The Shamish is the name of the central candle in the Hanukkah, the candelabra that you light the other candles with. Colney uh, Dre is the eve of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. So um, we got her on Erev Yom Kippur, so we called her Connie Dre. But as many of you know, I was raised in a Southern Baptist congregation, and it's been a transformative journey to move from my childhood experience, mostly of reading about Jews and reading stories about Jews that were primarily been written by Christians who were at that time very much trying to define themselves in opposition to Judaism. In which, if we're honest, a lot of those stories in the Christian Gospels kind of depict the Jews as those bad guys. So growing up with that and then beginning to grow up more as an adult and actually meeting real-life Jews uh, who have basically nothing in common with those biblical stories, one, because those stories were written in a biased way, and two, because 2,000 years of Jewish history have happened between the Bible and today. So that may be the single biggest aha moment that happened to me over time in regard to the Jewish tradition, the value of experiencing the Jewish tradition on its own terms. To give one of the most prominent examples in the Christianity of my childhood, I I often heard the Jewish um, practice of Sabbath described as just this legalistic, restrictive burden. It's just so terrible that, uh, that that's the case. But if you talk to many actual contemporary Jewish people, some, of course, will say, yes, Sabbath's a burden. That's why we don't do it anymore. But many observant Jews will tell you quite a different story about their experience in our modern world of the practice of Sabbath feeling like a blessing, feeling like permission to 
pay attention to spirituality and family and religion once every week, that that feels just incredibly liberating and freeing. I remember an old New Yorker cartoon that had a, someone very obviously Jewish on a cell phone that said, remember, you can reach me 24-6. <laughs> to give a more nerdy example, as someone originally trained in a Christian seminary, there's a fair, there's a fair amount of inst- uh, emphasis in such institutions on what is called biblical theology that seeks to draw out common or underlying themes throughout the diverse books that make up the anthology that we've come to call the Bible. But as I began to meet Jewish scholars, I was really fascinated to learn that like, I was taught that of course you do Old Testament theology, and here's all these great examples of it through the centuries, and here's why it's so fascinating. And so as I talked to Jewish scholars and said, so what does that look like when you try to do that from a Jewish perspective, not taking into account the New Testament? They said, we don't do things that way. It's, there's, it's just not an approach to scripture that's present in the Jewish tradition. To quote John Levinson, a professor of Jewish studies at Harvard University, he, said, he says, the effort to construct a systematic, harmonious theological statement out of what Jews consider the unsystematic material of the Hebrew Bible It just fits Christianity better than Judaism because systematic theology in general is more prominent at at home in the church rather than the synagogue, which is more about debating scriptural commentary. The impulse to systematize, Levinson says, among Christians, that tends to manifest in theology. So you get Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, Tillich, Rahner. To name just a few, those just don't have any close parallels in Jewry, maybe with the exception of Maimonides, but then that's just the exception that proves the rule. And the Mishnah, for example, that first written redaction of the Jewish oral tradition, it has no um, clear counterpoint in the church, with maybe the exception of Roman Catholic canon law, but that again tends to be a very straightforward, linear, dynamic text, whereas the Mishnah, you have the central text of the Torah in the center, and the Mishnah goes all around the outside and has commentary. So you have like, you know, not even just commentary at the bottom, all around encircling the text with the visualizing the community of interpretation with one thing saying like rabbi x said a and rabbi y says this and rabbi z says you're both wrong and this is what it should be and rabbi a says you two are kind of right this one's definitely wrong but here's what you all missed and it's like that it's 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 a little more like unitarian universalism in that respect where you're not trying to all find one belief it's more the case where you have three uus or three jews or three uu jews you have seven opinions So Christians, to give you just one final piece of that Levinson quote, Christians often have the impression of Judaism that it is a belief system too amorphous and ill-defined, and its legal system is then seen as excessively precise and overdetermined. But then Jews look at Christians and have this impression that Christians' ethical and liturgical life is dangerously subjective and overly emotionalistic, and that Christian theology is too rigid and too abstract. And if you ask Asians to conscribe their religion, Levinson concludes, they will often tell you about their practice. If you ask Christians, they'll often tell you about their beliefs. Judaism, in this respect, is more like an Asian religion than like Christianity. 
The qualification I would add is that what Levinson is describing is more like Orthodox Christianity, especially in the wake of Roman, the Roman Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. Uh, it's much less true of the best of progressive Christianity represented by congregations in this town, like Evangelical Reformed United Church of Christ, that, spoke, that really try to return to that focus on spiritual practices, on beloved community, and on social justice. So when I consider the UU fourth source of the Jewish and Christian teachings, we should be honest, there's a lot of fractured history between those two traditions, but there's also an incredible amount of beauty and wisdom and meaning. So what hit the window? Is this a bird or a... Okay, so Eileen's checking on it, so thank you. So as contemporary UUs open to drawing wisdom from the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science, we find ourselves here today in the high holy days of the Jewish tradition. The 10 days all total, including the two holidays, are also known as the 10 days of repentance. And even amidst all that's happened historically and today, this span of time remains a particularly auspicious time for practicing forgiveness. Ben spoke about some of the wrestling with that in the spoken meditation. A particularly auspicious time for seeking atonement, which if you break that word down into its constituent parts, means at-one-ment, right? Bringing back together as one something that has been um, torn asunder. All that being said, it's also important to be honest about what life-giving, authentic forgiveness is and what it isn't. Because I'm not talking about cheap forgiveness that invites us to move to forgiveness too quickly and just potentially risks making us into a doormat that that person who's wronged us can just walk all over us again and again and again. One of the most crucial lessons these annual 10 days of repentance can teach us is that forgiveness is a practice, and as a practice, it's actually not that different than most practices. So practicing the piano, practicing free throws and basketball, practicing cooking, practicing going to the gym, that we get better and more um, skilled and stronger at the things that we practice. The same is true, of course, of unforgiveness. If we keep practicing holding that grudge, we get better at it. We can also, though, as the pro we can also come to realize over time, as the proverb says, that refusing to forgive someone over a sufficiently long period of time tends to be a lot like drinking poison yourself and wishing that the other person would die. So in a few moments, I'm going to invite us, to the extent that feels comfortable to you, to experiment with practicing forgiveness. As preparation for doing so, I invite you to hear these words from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who learned a whole lot about the practice of forgiveness the hard way through his leadership in the truth and reconciliation process in apartheid South Africa. So Arch Archbishop Tutu wrote, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. Those words, they're so small when I see them written on the page, but there's a universe hidden in them. And when I forgive you, all those cords of resentment and pain and sadness that had wrapped themselves around my heart, I give them a chance to loosen. When I forgive you, I no longer allow you to define me. You measured me and assessed me and decided you could try to hurt me. You said that I didn't count, but I'll forgive you. 
I forgive you because I do count, because I do matter, and I'm bigger than the image of me that you have in your head. I'm stronger and more beautiful and infinitely more precious than the perception of me that you have in your heart. So I will forgive you. But my forgiveness, it's not a gift that I'm just giving you. Because when I forgive you, it's a gift that begins to give itself to me. It's also crucial that for Archbishop Tutu, the final step of forgiveness, it's not necessarily renewing the relationship. It might mean that. It it quite often does mean that. But forgiveness could also mean I choose to release this relationship. 